I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians. First chapter of the book of Ephesians, you will find it on page 1159 if you're using the Bible in the pew. We are beginning at verse 15 and going to verse 23, this likely being the first of two sermons on this text, and we will begin with these words from the Apostle Paul. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. You're being a distraction, little girl. <laughs> so we have covered the uh, first section of chapter 1 in Ephesians, the, lo- the second longest sentence in the New Testament, and there we heard about our Heavenly Father's great plan, which is older than trees or water or air. That is, to give His children every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, to choose and predestine them for adoption, to wash them and call them holy and blameless, and to seal all those blessings by the promised Holy Spirit. And in Paul's great rejoicing over all of that and the great work that God has done, he moves from glad, thrilled theology into glad, thrilled prayer. And you might have noticed it's a big chunk of text we're covering this morning. I mean for this morning's sermon to mostly be on this aspect of prayer that Paul is telling us what he's been praying for, the Apostle Paul is doing. And uh, and I want to look into what we can learn about prayer just from this text. And then next Sunday, we'll dig into, you might say, the the doctrinal depth of, of what this text gives us. But Paul's focus in this passage is on his prayers. So I want to talk about prayer this morning and how Paul's prayers in this passage help us to understand and and get at prayer. Let's begin with these helpful words from our catechism. Question 98, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. An offering up of our desires unto God. That's what Paul is doing in this prayer. He is saying, here are my desires, which I offer in thankfulness. And I want you to notice that Paul moves from celebrating the sovereignty of God in the first part of chapter 1, predestined and adopted and called and chosen and so on, to praying. Which might not seem like the most obvious next move or next step. Because sometimes, I think we are tempted to ask, and again, whether I, 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 I've heard this question from Christians and from people who are not Christians, 
If God is sovereign, why pray? Paul does not directly answer that question in our text, but I do think he models an understanding that sovereignty and prayer go together that's going to help us to make peace with the question. For Paul, you see, the question is not, if God is sovereign, why pray? Rather, Paul's question is, since God is sovereign, why wouldn't I? Okay? Since God is the one who has sovereignly ordained our salvation, that's that first bit of chapter 1 that we've covered so far, verses 1 through 14. If God is the one, since God is the one who sovereignly ordained our salvation, our rescue, our forgiveness, our blessing after blessing in Christ, why would we not therefore come eagerly before that kind of a father? And I want us to see at least three things in our text this morning that Paul, uh, Paul announces, of course, again, in the first part of chapter 1 about the great sovereign plan of God. We learn three things in his prayer based off that reality. We learn that God is sovereign, and therefore Paul is thankful. We learn God is sovereign, and therefore Paul is asking things of God. And we learn that God is sovereign, and therefore Paul is trusting. So he's thankful, asking, and trusting. So we'll start with the first one. God is sovereign, therefore I am thankful. Verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The very first thing you should be thinking when you read this is what's the for this reason? It is both Because I've heard about your faith, that's what he says, and also I would submit to you the last 14 verses for this reason of God's work and because of your faith. In other words, because of the good news of the work of God, I give thanks and I pray. And a few sermons ago, you heard me observe that predestination tends to make us pick theological fights. Meanwhile, it made the apostle worship. He was too busy worshiping to worry about the tensions that we invent over predestination. Here, I think, he instructs us again. To anyone who would say, well, if God is sovereign, and if His work of providence includes preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions, then why pray? I begin simply by noting, it doesn't occur to Paul to answer that question. He's talking about sovereignty, he's talking about predestination, and then he starts talking about his prayers. And it doesn't seem to occur to him to cut any sort of knot there or to resolve any sort of tension. He's simply saying, God is sovereign, therefore I pray. You see, we think of God's sovereignty sometimes, uh, sort of if we're honest, in our flesh is what I mean. We think of sovereignty and talk of predestination as a threat to our free will and free actions, or or that it renders them neutral or worthless. But in Paul's world, that is not so. In Paul's world, prayer is part of how God works out His plan. God delights to work through prayer. Yes, God has ordained all things. That's true. And one of those things is that He brings about His purposes By the prayers of His people, not in spite of them. By the prayers of His people, not in spite of them. So much so, this may be a whole other sermon, but so much so I'm quite fine with saying, we prayed, God did it, and if we didn't pray, He wouldn't have. I'm actually fine with putting it that way because prayer is the means that God has ordained to accomplish His purposes. 
Okay? So what does Paul pray about? I'm glad to hear you all agree with that. That's good. <laughs> so what does Paul pray about? He gives thanks. He remembers. He tells the Ephesian Christians, I remember you in my prayers. I remember you in my prayers. I remember you in my prayers. He's thankful that these Ephesians have become Christians. Eh? He's thankful that these pagan Gentiles are worshiping Jesus. And indeed, we too celebrate. We too celebrate when men and women find their way to faith in Jesus Christ. We celebrate with Hollis, our brother today, as he's baptized into the family of God. And if you look back at your text, you'll notice that Paul is thankful not only that they've had faith, but their faith has resulted in something, namely love. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. These Christians at this church in Ephesus, they love each other well, apparently. Right? They love each other well. They're kind to each other, which can be hard sometimes for a church to do. I mean, I'll, I'll give you this news. Every church believes themselves to be loving and welcoming. You know why? Because we're really nice to each other. <laughs> so like, maybe, is, is the church warm and welcoming? Well, sure, we, we're nice to uh, the ones that are here. But this church has a reputation not only for their faith, but for their love toward all the saints. The news has gotten back to Paul, and he's rejoicing in prison. So what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn that while we must, while we must be careful when it comes to uh, publicizing the good works of others, right? Jesus said, try to do your good works in secret. That, that's, that's right. However, I'm, I'm going to offer to you, we also have to balance that with the realization that other people seeing and hearing the love that we have for each other is an enormous source of encouragement to everyone. Okay? What I have certainly learned as a pastor is that a lot of love and service and happiness within the body happens in this congregation and you'll never hear about it. This is why your elders and deacons are working on putting together some avenues and some structures for us to be able to more easily serve each other and to hear about it. I'm going to talk to you more about that at the congregational meeting. Because reports of the good work that we are doing encourage the whole body. This is also why testimonies are important, by the way. Whether they're delivered in public, in a setting like this, or over a meal, or over coffee, uh, we, we need to hear one another's stories. The, the work that God has done in your life is very important for others to hear. It would be good to have a space for public testimony in the life of our body. Maybe God has done something really remarkable in your life, but the thought of sharing that up front, something like this, absolutely paralyzes you. I would offer, if, if you would, come and talk to me about that. Because an easy way to share a testimony that I don't think we use or talk about enough is just to get it on video, okay? We can sit you down in a room, you're looking at a camera, I'll be in there with you, you share your testimony, and it'll lessen the stage fright. And we can, we can you know, cut out the ums and uhs and make you sound really clean and smart, too. That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> I can only work with what you give us, really. Uh, but it's something to think about in any case. Testimonies are really important, and, and the work of God in our lives, not, not just for the sake of storytelling, but the work of God in our lives by His Word and Spirit is really important for us to hear. It's important that we know each other's stories. 
Important that we share them. Important that others hear them. It's a kind of spiritual fuel that God means to give us for our encouragement. That's what Paul says. I thank God when I'm remembering your faith, I'm remembering your love for the saints, that it's encouraging me as I'm sitting here in prison. So God is sovereign, therefore Paul is thankful. God is sovereign, therefore he's asking, verse 17. So the, the other part, it was remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might. I'm not going to get to all that this morning. Some of that's going to be pushed into the, uh, the sermon next Sunday. But what I, what I am going to focus on here is, is that the apostle knows that God is sovereign over everything. Not only over salvation, but also for ongoing growth and sanctification. Notice that Paul prays that these Christians in Ephesus would be given the Spirit. Given the Spirit. right? That, our, that the Father of glory may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Huh. Well, wait. They're Christians. So, don't they already have the Spirit? Yes. He prays that they would know the hope to which they've been called. Well, that's the hope of the gospel, uh, life everlasting. We, we look for the resurrection of the dead. Do they not already have that? Yes, they do. Paul prays that they would know of God's great power toward them. Well, goodness, they've been rescued out of darkness, haven't they? Surely they know of God's power to save already. Yes, they do. It would probably shock some of you to know how much of biblical prayer, that is, the praying that people do in the Bible, is prayer for God to do the stuff He's already promised to do. Daniel in Babylon is praying for the end of exile. God had already promised that the exile would come to an end, though. John, in the book of Revelation, prays, Come, Lord Jesus. He'd already promised He was going to return. Every petition in the Lord's Prayer that we prayed a moment ago is a request for something God has already promised somewhere else in Scripture He's going to do. Hallowed be your name. Make your name holy. Done. Your kingdom come. It's coming. It's going to. He's promised it. Your will be done. It always is. Give us our daily bread. He's already promised to supply your needs according to His riches and glory. So what's going on here? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not telling us to pray for things that might happen. He's teaching us to pray for what God has promised. Why do we pray what God has said He will do? Is it because God's going to forget and we have to remind Him? No, but we forget. And apparently, in His infinite wisdom, our Father in heaven knows that we need to be made to ask for what He has already promised. So that when He delivers on those promises, our brains and our hearts will form hard connections between our prayers and God's actions. And the eyes of our hearts need to see that. So we say, God, You've already promised that Your kingdom will come, that Your will is going to be done. And God says, I know. Ask for it anyway. Father, You've already promised daily bread. I know. I want You to ask for it. Our Father, 
you're going to forgive me my sins in the same way I forgive others. I don't know if I want that one. God says, I want you to ask me to do it. So apparently, my soul and your soul needs to ask for promises. But what else should we notice here? What is the most central thing that Paul prays for in this portion of the text? Did you catch it? Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of Him. Paul's most central prayer for these Christians is simply that they would know God in the knowledge of Him. We tend to think the most important thing to pray for is a change in our circumstances, especially when our circumstances hurt. What is remarkable and remarkably consistent about Paul's prayers in the New Testament is that he almost never requests a change in circumstances. There is the instance where he pleads with God to remove the the thorn in the flesh. And so that tells us it is not wrong. It is never wrong to ask God for changes in our circumstances. But it is interesting that every other prayer Paul offers up in the New Testament is some variation on this main theme that you would know God. So do you? Do, Do you know God? Do you know God? I mean, that, that should be a question that stirs us and drives us. Do you know God? Not do you know things about God. Not, not even do you know how to talk to God. Do you know God? Do you know the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? If your heart falters with that question, well, no, or I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Or, or, or oh, I, I do, but not as I ought to. Okay? There is great hope for you. Look at how Paul describes this God we must know. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, may give you, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. God, by His Spirit, And His apostolic word that we have before us reveals Himself to us. In fact, what He says here in Ephesians, He repeats over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Can we go there now? Yeah. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Same kind of language. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How does the Spirit do this? Primarily by enlightening our eyes when we hear God's words and enlightening our hearts. Look at the next verse back in Ephesians. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's Paul repeating the same words from God that he gave earlier in chapter 1 about the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Inheritance, excuse me. So how should this affect our prayers, right? We must be a people constantly asking God to open our eyes to the reality of His truth, what He has said, what it means, what it demands of us. He is sovereign, so we should ask it. 
So we've said that God is sovereign, therefore thankful, therefore asking. The third point is therefore trusting. Look at verse 19. What is the immeasurable riches, immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. He put all things under His feet, gave Him His head over all things of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Notice what Paul is doing in this latter part of our passage this morning. Having talked about how they should pray, I'm taking it for granted that he's modeling prayer for them. He directs their hearts to why they should pray. Without even specifically saying that's what he's doing, he's reminding them of the power and the glory of the exalted Jesus. Right? Because if he to put it in, in kind of rough terms, if he pulls that off, if, if he gives them a glorious picture of Jesus and the eyes of their heart are enlightened to see it, then prayer is going to come a lot more, a lot more naturally to them. <clears throat> He's reminding them of the power of Christ, of the resurrection, of the ascension, of the session or seating of Christ in the heavenly places. And it is a recognition of that power and might and glory that draws you and I in to pray. Because if our God is in control of all things, then why would we not bring our petitions to Him with great joy and confidence? The reality is that understanding God's sovereignty gives you not just great confidence in prayer, but in all of life. I mean, to put it bluntly, if you knew just how well taken care of you were, Christian, to help you grasp this, I'm going to borrow an illustration method from Timothy Keller, adjusted for my use. I've used this illustration before, so if you've heard it before, just bear with me and enjoy it all over again. God is sovereign over everything. Everything means everything. I will explain it to you like this. Why am I here? Okay? Why am I, Brian Rhodes, standing here this morning preaching to you? Because I'm a pastor, right? Why did I become one of those? So glad you asked. When I moved to Alexandria in 2012, I started teaching at uh, Grace Christian School and started uh, worshiping here at Grace Church. After I'd been attending here and working for about a year or so, Bob Vinson encouraged me to start down the road of ordination. Why did I come to Grace when I moved to Alexandria in 2012? Well, because I'm a Presbyterian. I wanted to find a gospel-centered church where people loved Jesus, where the Word was faithfully preached, where the sacraments were rightly administered, where church discipline was practiced. A place where people love the Bible, love the doctrines of grace, love the Westminster Confession. I found those things in Bob Vincent and in conversations with many of you. I came to grace because I wanted to worship here. But why am I a Presbyterian? I'm so glad you asked. That came out of a long and beneficial relationship with my mentor, Pastor Mike Sherritt, who taught me how to preach and how to love the gospel, how to see the big picture story of the Bible. I learned all that at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Why was I in Lynchburg, Virginia? Well, I uh, was a student at Liberty University. Why was I going to Liberty? Well, Liberty was three hours away from Springfield, Virginia, where my parents lived at the time. It was a good school. It was committed to ed educating Christian leaders and big plus. It was close to mom and dad, you know, not too close, but, uh, you know, close enough for a visit every now and then, right? Why were mom and dad living in Virginia? Well, dad was stationed in Washington, D.C. at the time. He was in the Air Force. I know what you're thinking. Why was my dad in the Air Force? 
That's what you were thinking, right? He joined the Air Force because the Air Force lets doctors be flight surgeons. Flight surgeons are doctors who get to fly on planes and occasionally jets. And how cool is that? Right? Like a doctor, but occasionally you get to ride in a jet. I mean, ask any ancient history professor if he secretly wants to carry a gun and be Indiana Jones. Of course he does. So my dad was in the Air Force. Well, why do we even have an Air Force? Well, part of the National Security Act of 1947 stipulated that the Air Force would form a new branch of the military separate from the Army. It would no longer be the Army Air Corps. It would now be the Air Force. Why did they do that? Well, because man was flying now. You couldn't expect to defend a country or win a war without air superiority, basic fact. How is it that we could fly? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 1903, Orville and and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, built and successfully tested their first airplane, which is amazing to think about, that the airplane's like 120 years old. That's it. Why did the Wright brothers want to fly so bad? I'm almost done. In 1896, a German metal worker named Otto Lilienthal tried to fly. He attached wings to his arms and jumped from a tall hill. And it worked. He flew. Sort of. (laughs) For a minute. (laughs) And then he crashed and died. (laughs) But the Wright brothers found his story. The Wright brothers did. And they thought he did fly for just a second, though, and that's pretty cool. They figured out where he went wrong. They built something better. So why am I standing here at 4900 Jackson Street preaching to you this morning in a robe and a collar? Because some crazy German guy put wings on his arms in 1896 and jumped off a cliff. That's why. That is why. Now, we don't often think of the sovereignty of God in terms like that. But that is how we must think about the sovereignty of God, who orders and directs all things according to the praise of His glory. When you watch movies about going back in time, you know the consistent theme is you can't mess with anything because messing with the slightest thing could change the course of history. We don't often consider how that would mean all the thousands of micro decisions that we make today ripple out through the future forever. So do not despise the day of small beginnings, Christian. Moms and dads, do not despise the seemingly insignificant lessons and repeated instructions, and repeated instructions, and repeated instructions, diaper changes, and ordinary meals around the table, and the hard work of discipline. When Jesus deployed the first disciples to begin the first steps of the Great Commission, he started with families. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. So come and be baptized, you and your whole household. So this great work that will change the world, that will change the world, doesn't start in seminaries or colleges or schools. It starts in kitchens and in living rooms, around hearths and dinner tables. So God is sovereign. Therefore, let us pray. Now, there is a sort of danger, I confess, when you're on preaching about prayer, Because the best way to learn about prayer is actually to pray, truth be told. And also, I have to throw this in. I have in my notes, make sure you get, you know, if you run out of time, just get to this part. Prayer is hard. It is not easy. If you find somebody and they say prayer is super easy, they're lying. 
if you struggle with praying, you are not alone. It is hard for most people. We just don't talk about that because it feels really unspiritual to talk about that. If you need help structuring out a devotional time and a pattern, here's my uber spiritual recommendation for you. Get a Bible, get a reading plan, carve out 30 minutes, 15 minutes in the Word, 15 minutes in prayer, set a timer if you gotta. I don't care if that sounds unspiritual. It's a really great help. And it's a really good place to start. Another way we grow in the good work of prayer, by the way, is praying together. Right now, your elders are reading a book on corporate prayer and the church's corporate prayer meeting and why that's sort of fallen out of fashion and how to go about reviving it. Again, you'll hear more about that at the congregational meeting. For, for now, my main point is that you see that God's sovereignty provokes us to pray. It provokes us to pray. Such is His love and care for us. He calls us His children, then says, come and know me and be known by me. So God is sovereign, and therefore, let us pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we ask for help in prayer. We ask that our hearts would be delighted by all of the things that delighted the heart of the Apostle Paul in that second longest sentence in the New Testament. He could barely get it out for his joy. And that after going through all of that, talked about his prayers. So let it be with us. Father, give it to us to pray. To pray well, to pray with each other. Even if, and if, if, if there's someone listening this morning who, who just needs a starting place, 15 minutes in the Word, 15 minutes in prayer. Grant us to learn the discipline, learn the habit, learn the, the muscle memory, as it were, of communion with you. Indeed, Give us that communion now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name.